Welcome back to the Rambling Preacher Podcast. My name is Jesse, and I am your host. So, this week, I am talking about the verse that changed everything. And uh, this one was just one that was on my heart. Is something I needed to get out there. Um, and my hope in this is actually not that people that already know this and feel this and get this will hear this and have a confirmation, but rather maybe there's some charismatics out there that could benefit from hearing what changed everything for me. Now, I am still a continuationist, and I am still a charismatic, and there are some different verses I could have picked out. Things like Matthew 7, 21 was one that I was always nervous about uh, through 22 and things like that. But we're going to jump into a little bit of my history. Um, I'm anticipating 25 minutes to get through this. It will not be long. I'm just anticipating a little bit of a history and then getting into the section of scripture that really just began to change some things in my life. Um, oh, geez, only four or five years ago, really, truly. Um, and so most of you guys should know uh, by now, if you've been listening, that uh, I was saved at a young age. In fact, I don't really recollect an exact moment I was saved. I started attending church when I was very little. I've been attending church since before I remember, which is, which is admirable because we had my single mother, two boys, we went to church in Idaho. Um, we, we were in Montana going to church sometimes, then in Idaho, and then moved to Utah to follow my uncle who started and planted a church here in Utah. And so by the time of third grade, I was going to church uh, two, three, four times a week, pretty much my whole upbringing. And thank the Lord that I had a, uh, a Pentecostal mother who believed in prayer and believed in the power of prayer. I think that's one thing that is lacking in a lot of uh, maybe evangelical circles nowadays is the parents don't pray enough. And so I had a mother who consistently and constantly prayed for me, for my brother, to be saved and to know Christ. And uh, and yeah, took us to church a whole lot because my mother was kind of like my uncle's fallback support. She was always there to help him, support him. Um, and now I have that similar with my mother now. I mean, she's still just that. She is the greatest person to have in your corner, the greatest support system. She's more like a grandmother to the church with wise counsel uh, and things like that. But she is fantastic through and through. And uh, my mother usually listens to these sometimes. So, hey, mom, I just want you to know I love you. And I thank the world uh, or thank the world, thank the Lord for you and uh, think the world of you. And so uh, we got through, um, you know, high school and, and we joined the Pentecostal Church of God. And that actually had some pros to it for sure, and uh, still connected with some people from PCG. In fact, they're trying to um, have our worship team do an event for them, but I don't know if all the ducks will line up for us um, with the team. But anyway, we uh, I grew up pe- Pentecostal, um, and uh, I actually was very, very afraid of theology. I had some friends um, who were getting into theology and church history, and I was just afraid because, and this was my flesh, I think, but I was just always afraid because I was already a teenager who struggled with pride, and I knew that, and I didn't want to continue to struggle with pride, but I always felt like people who study theology got puffed up and 
um, were unrelatable and couldn't talk to you. And, and honestly, I still think this is the mentality out there today. People that are charismatic look at me and think, oh, he's, he's using big words to show off he's smart and he's, he's saying these things. But really, he doesn't know. He doesn't, he doesn't get it. He, he's just he's a head guy. And what drives me absolutely crazy about that is I, <laughs> I have been as crazy charismatic as you can be. Um, I have been, and now I have studied out theology and church history, and I'm trying to be as balanced as I can be. I was a charismatic who read my Bible, right? I read my Bible a lot as a teenager. I mean, a lot. Um, that was one thing I was pretty faithful in. My mother ingrained in me to read your Bible. And, uh, I loved it. I chewed it up. I would highlight it. I would mark in it. I would make notes. Now, how, correct my interpretation was and, and where I was. I mean, once I actually finally got into theology, I realized I'm like, man, this is like a cheat code. Now things make sense a lot sooner. It's like reading, <laughs> you know, the John MacArthur commentary, but I usually wouldn't, you know, and, and I had life application Bibles. I had the spirit filled Bible. I've read the NKJV through, I've read the NASB a couple times through, um, you know, honestly, it wasn't until my older teenage years, 18, 19, and maybe even into 20, when I was um, started to fall off from reading as faithfully. But younger um, me, I was attending intercessory prayer every single Tuesday. I was attending youth every uh, every single Tuesday before intercession. I was attending midweek service. I was attending God's provision, which was a soup kitchen on Friday. I was usually doing outreach. I was going to church Sunday and Sunday night sometimes. I mean, when I was a teenager, I was heavily involved four to five services per week. And yeah, that came with a spiritual pride where well, I get it. I go to church all the time, and I read my Bible all the time, and I go to prayer, and I this and that and this and that. And spiritual pride did seep in, unfortunately. And, um, you know, I, I do think I was better at acknowledging other people who maybe weren't in that position and, and being more loving and accepting of them than maybe some of my peers in the same range and the same age. Um, but ultimately, you know, I just... I did have a zeal. I started I started a Bible study at my high school at 15 years old. I mean, um, I, I still just think back to that. I'm like, geez, was I crazy. I mean, I was turning 16 that year, but um, at 15, sophomore in high school, starting a Bible study. Um, in fact, that's how Shane and I got connected, uh, was he was the youth pastor at the church that I was doing the Bible study at, which was just literally half a block down the road from my high school. Um, I did want to start it with a few other teenagers that I knew were Christians at the school, but unfortunately, when I asked them to lead or help support it, they, they would come, but they didn't want to lead Bible study. So, um, but it was good. It created this habit in me where I began, okay, what are we going to study? We're going to study Romans, okay. And I would go in and I would actually fast every single Thursday, only do liquids every single Thursday, and I would read the scriptures, um, create an outline, create a study plan, create probing questions. Honestly, it's not too far off from what I do today. And every single Thursday, I did that. I mean, so I'm saying all of these things, kind of building up this moment of like, changed everything um, in the sense of, I think I came to a, a better understanding of the gospel, a better understanding of my call upon my life. Um, I do, in general, look back at my teenage years with seeing some pride, um, seeing some fallenness, seeing some character issues, but ultimately, glory to God, and, and thankfully for a praying mother, I, I was able to make it through without any major downfalls, without any major sins, without getting into demonic things, without, you know, so I, I thank the Lord for that, glory to God, but I also acknowledge that there were definitely some downfalls, but in general, um, it's not like I needed, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the wording to say, like, it's not like this 
is when I was saved. I, I really can't pinpoint an exact moment I was saved, but there were many times throughout my life where I experienced something, um, just a, a new illumination of the Spirit, a, a new intimacy with, with the Holy Spirit or God, um, a deeper relationship, a deeper impact, um, profound understanding of His love, and those types of things came and went, and I would consider them kind of like fillings of the Holy Spirit, where I had momentous moments um, that propelled me through a season of my life to carry on. Um, and then, yeah, sometimes I'd fizzled out because of lack of prayer or lack of this or that or lack of killing my sin in my life or just feeling defeated or allowing, you know, um, my flesh or the enemy to lie to me about God doesn't love me anymore, things like that. One of my first moments actually was when I was younger, and I'm rambling a bit on my history here, but when I was younger, um, honestly, it was young. It was like fifth grade, maybe. Um, I remember just praying in my room, you know, just praying out to God, just saying, God, I, uh, I feel like I don't have a dad, right? And I just was like, my real dad isn't there for me. He doesn't love me. My stepdad is just here to boss me around. He doesn't actually care for me, care for my emotions or heart or soul. He just is here to provide and, and boss, right? And like in that moment, there was just this unreal, just like warmth, like almost like just, you know, not literally physically, but there was just something spiritually happening in that moment where I just felt enveloped by his love. Um, and I just had this impression upon my heart that I am your father. And uh, it broke me. I was weeping, a fifth grader in my bedroom, just weeping, realizing that I had such a loving father in heaven who was better than any earthly father he could have ever given me. Um, and I'll be honest, that was probably the first time I was ever awakened to the genuine depth of his love for me. Um, you know, and, and it's crazy to think that, you know, I still wrestled with that throughout my life and throughout my teenage years. And here we are, you know, 18, 20 years past that, and and just to see where God has taken me and what he's done in my life. And um, but what's cool about this, and kind of a shout out to Continuationist, is in, in this time when I was charismatic, I actually would always pray in my bedroom, just on my bed with my eyes open, like I was just talking. Um, I didn't get on my knees. I didn't close my eyes. I just was always just very conversational in my prayers, like almost like from that moment on, it was like my dad is in my room with me, and I just want to talk to him. And uh, there was actually one person who was uh, a gifted minister, and uh, they actually came and they prayed for me, and they said, you know, God God hears your prayers, um, and when you pray, he's in the room with you. Um, and I, I just think it's just like you and your dad having a conversation. And I remember that blowing my mind, like, oh my gosh, this person knows exactly what my prayer life is like. Um, but anyway, that was my prayer life. That was, and honestly, it's not too much different than, than that today. I just kind of converse with the Lord as I live my life, um, while I'm driving, while I'm worshiping, while I'm going from A to B, um, even at my job, I pray. Um, and, and, you know, those moments of separation, they happen, um, but honestly, it's like praying for people just in my life, conti consistently, continually living more of a lifestyle of prayer has been really what I'm trying to incorporate more and more. Anyway, I wanted to come back to earth here a moment and just give you kind of a background. Some of you know this. Th these are newish stories. I don't know if I've shared any of these stories I shared today. Um, 
But all of that to say, my young thoughts on theology by the time I was 16, 15, 16, 17, getting serious about Bible studies, getting serious about pursuits. I mean, spiritual pride 101 here. I actually went to my youth pastor and said, hey, I don't think I'm being fed enough by the Sunday school lessons that are their curriculum from the PCG. So I was like, I would rather go to the adult Sunday school and hear from the pastor. I mean, that's spiritual pride 101. Um, but I did that, right? That was <laughs> So I did have a hunger, but a lack of humility. Um, but my young thoughts on theology were, well, I don't need people who don't know the Spirit intimately to tell me how to read my Bible. And I don't need people uh, who are puffed up to make me more puffed up. And here I am already with spiritual pride, not realizing how proud I was even in saying that, that I don't need <laughs> people like John Calvin who spent decades upon decades in their entire life studying out the Word of God and know it much better than I do. Um, I don't need the Calvins. I don't need the Raven Hills, the Martin Lloyd-Jones. I mean, if we're talking about pastors, C.H. Virgin, the Prince of Preachers. I don't need Augustine. I don't need church history. I've got the Bible, and I've got the Holy Spirit. That's all I need. It's all I'll ever need, and I've got my local pastor, which honestly, without the pride you know, the spirit, the Bible, and your pastor or your elders, that's honestly a, gr a great place to be. I'm not saying that's insufficient. Um, but when you have access to theology, access to great minds, um, why not have them be your checks and balances? But rather, I just said, nope, not for me. Can't touch that. That'll just form pride in my life. Not good. Um, and yeah, my young thoughts on other denominations. I thought, you know, Baptists are saved. Lutherans are kind of weird, but they're kind of like saved. Um, I don't know about Presbyterians. I don't really know what they believe, but they're Christian, I think, you know, and I just kind of was like, and, and in America, right, you have modern evangelicals who they all kind of look the same, right? Like I associate with some Assemblies of God, with some Foursquare, with some Baptists, and they're kind of more like evangelical, bro broken loose Baptists that are a little continuationist leaning, and they all kind of look and sound the same. Um, especially Assemblies of God. Like, if you knew nothing about theology, um, the Assemblies of God is, pr they have quite a few churches in this area. And honestly, like, they seem just like a normal evangelical church that, you know, preaches topical sermons and, and cares for the lost and has prayer events. Like, there's nothing overly charismatic or Pentecostal about the Assemblies of God around us. And, uh, even the Pentecostal Church of God, I don't think they seem that overly like we don't we only have maybe one or two churches in the area that are Bethel level charismatic. And, uh, you know, and I, I actually know some people that interact with them and they still have good character. And, you know, um, I'm not trying to persuade them to not be charismatic. I actually think you should stay in a church like that and kind of be a light toward um, theology, doctrine, church history, a light toward maybe when they misunderstand or misinterpret scripture. I actually think you know, try try to be a light within um, towards small minor changes. Don't don't try to rock the entire boat and cause strife and division and, and, and cause fights. But if you can be a light from within um, and point people to maybe a more accurate interpretation or maybe other ways of thinking rather than keeping the theology. I mean, my fear is people hear something like this and like, oh, I got to get out of my charismatic church. And then they leave that theological echo chamber the exact same way. Rather stay there, grow there. Pray to God that if, if you're right and you have some correct thinking, that this will spread and that the church in turn will begin to see things properly. And I'm not, I'm not saying everything, right? But I'm saying some things. But anyway, my young thoughts on other denominations were, well, they're Christian. They're just not as good of Christians. And uh, that was, once again, spiritual pride. 
I didn't think much for doctrines. I didn't think much for catechisms. I didn't think much for church history. How I read scripture usually would, um, I would love to find an old study Bible of mine, but I'd usually read it and apply it, read it and apply it, read and apply it. And that's okay, but I never read it for what's the context. What's the proper interpretation? Like, honestly, it wasn't until probably like 17-ish that I even realized, 18-ish, when I even realized that, uh, I I mean, I knew that books had a purpose, but I didn't care that much. I don't know if that makes sense, and maybe charismatics on here can relate to that. Um, But it wasn't until, you know, I I really started hitting scriptures in in a more and we'll get there. This is what I'm trying to get to. But I really was just reading to apply, reading to understand, reading to memorize. I did memorize. Um, but I would memorize things kind of outside of their context. Um, Habakkuk 1.5, the one I, I love to quote because I still haven't memorized this very day. I felt an impression from the Lord. Uh, and this is a very charismatic thing to do, but a very, you know, Lord, give me a word. And you flip through your Bible and just stop. Boom. <laughs> and uh, and that actually didn't happen with Habakkuk 1.5, but I did that a few times, uh, several times, uh, probably more than I could count in this moment, probably over 20 times where I was like, Lord, give me a word, and you'll stop it. Anyway, <laughs> I think that's funny. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can't, but that was something I did. And one that I felt impressed upon my heart from the Lord in prayer was Habakkuk 1.5. Watch, look, be utterly amazed, for I will do a work in your days you would not believe, even if I told you. And I took that and ran. I thought maybe... Maybe I'm the next Billy Graham, you know, maybe, maybe I'm the next, uh, David Wilkerson. Maybe I'm the next, you know, uh, (laughs) you know, and I just, that, that fed my spiritual pride, unfortunately. And, uh, I didn't read things within context. In fact, my youth pastor who went to Bible college, who was still charismatic, but he seemed less charismatic than maybe the rest of us. But he actually told me, he's like, well, you know, that's not the proper context. What it goes on to say is, and I just kind of was like, well, yeah, I get that. But this was a word from the Lord to me. And this is what he's saying. And now I look back and I'm like, well, maybe God was saying that, but maybe it was the improper, you know, maybe it's bad. Maybe it's going to be bad in my lifetime, you know? And I was like, well, praying against it. Then I was like, God, please don't bring anything bad in my life. Don't, you know, and, and, uh, and he's been, God has been faithful. I think it was just a teenage brain trying to make things work. Um, and I clung, clung to that word. I, I clung to that word, and that motivated me in so many ways. I felt called to, to start a Bible study. I'm like, well, this is one of the stepping blocks. I felt called. We started Young Men's Retreat. These are good things, right? We did. We, we hosted eight years' worth of Young Men's Retreats over the summer where we'd invite only men, um, high school or college-aged. And we did Bible studies and worship and sermons, and it was actually more dense with Bible studies than it was with free time. So, I mean, I actually think it was great, but part of the purpose was to build connections with other young men in the Ogden area. And so all good things, right? But I think my my heart was in the wrong place. My heart was, God's going to do something with me. I'm doing this because um, I, I'm supposed to be something in God's kingdom. God wants to use me to be something. I was pursuing being a pastor um, and reading my word oftentimes for the wrong reasons. Rather than serving God to bring glory to his His name and to his kingdom and just living a faithful life and having high quality character and, and displaying godliness and the fruit of the spirit, it was very much like me-focused, right? Me-centric Christianity. And uh, and even if people, I, I think people saw through that, right? I think people did. I think there were some people that were rubbed wrong by me, and they're like, well, you're just here to serve yourself. And it, it, 
it's so hard to explain because it wasn't like in the moment, I really did not think I was doing it for myself. I really felt I'm doing this for God. I'm doing this because it's my call. I'm doing this because I love people. And I really did love people. The people I've ministered with or ministered to or did Bible studies with, um, I loved. I mean, I'm still good friends with a good chunk of those men that I was with at that time of my life. And if you told me in that moment I was operating out of severe spiritual pride, I would have told you, I, I get that I'm always having some pride in my life and I'm keeping that in check, but I wouldn't have seen it the same way you do. Now, I think some people came against me improperly and uh, and maybe went too far, but here I am. I'm trying to admit that there was some spiritual pride in there. Not It wasn't because I wanted to be the next Billy Graham. I honestly thought that's what God wanted. And so it's kind of this weird like spiritual pride, but yet still trying to serve God. And anyway, I, I'm, I'm, once again, this is all part of the story today. It's only, like I said, 25, 30 minutes. Um, so we'll wrap up in the next five, 10 minutes. I just want to jump into what shifted my paradigm, what fixed some of these things going on. Um, so I began reading uh, theology and church history and just, just fiddling with it, right? Nothing crazy. Um, but I began fiddling with it because I had a friend who was challenging me in some charismatic areas and a friend who was, um, you know, we would talk about Calvin. We would talk about um, Arminius, not densely, not heavily. He knew I couldn't hang with those deep theological, uh, you know, discussions, but he would he would give me what I could handle. And we would talk scripture and we'd talk, you know, Romans 9. And it was always just like this banter, this, that, this, that. We never really wanted to come to a conclusion. It was just discussion, right? And um, I think there was a God-ordained season where uh, he was lifted from my life, and it, it caused me to realize, like, I actually need to care about this stuff, and I actually need to learn and have my own opinions, not just fall back on what I, well, this is what I know, and this is what I think, but no, actually study out both sides, actually watch debates, actually read some books, right? Heaven forbid I just look up the quotes of books, but rather read the entire book. Um, begin to read church history, begin to watch um, lectures from people like John MacArthur who challenged me. I didn't agree with him, but could I defend my case against him? You know, and, and I began looking at John MacArthur, and I discovered R.C. Sproul, and oh my goodness, I love of R.C. Sproul and I, you know, and all of these things. And in this time, part of the reason that it really changed things for me was I knew I was called to be a pastor, but I had grown very content with just planting a sister church eventually in my life and being a youth minister. Um, but uh, we had our son and, and I, I uh, was put in a situation where I was trying to be self-employed. I had more time at home. And then I kind of became the stay-at-home father, which didn't work for us. It, it should have been my wife the whole time. But it put me in a situation where I'm like, well, if I don't actually study this out for myself, and if I don't actually take this time where I'm home more to change, um, not just change, but not not even change. It's not That wasn't the goal. But to actually deep dive into knowing things and being able to hold a deep discussion with someone who's studied the word of God in a pastoral type of level, then why do I think I'm ever called to be a pastor? And so I began to deep dive um, into it. I mean, head over heels, no, you got to think, no job, um, free time, trying to be self-employed. Um, I mean, you can ask my wife, there were, there were some days where I would spend four or five hours just studying. I mean, and I, I was, my mind was in a, in a mush state because I felt like everything I believed I was challenging. And in a way, um, 
in a way, deconstructing. Now, not deconstructing my faith in Christ. I believed that. But deconstructing everything I was taught, everything I was told to believe, deconstructing um, my own paradigms, my own thought processes, my own everything, and just being willing to approach the Word of God with an open heart and open mind and saying, Lord, Holy Spirit, teach me, guide me, help me understand this thing. And I had never approached the Word of God with that type of attitude. It was always like, okay, what can I get today? What can I gain today? It was never, I'm a brand new person approaching this Word I know nothing. I have no paradigms, no presuppositions, right? Those were things I had never thought of until this moment um, almost three years ago now. Um, So you're talking someone who had read the Bible through several times, but I had never approached it saying, I'm eliminating presuppositions. I am eliminating my preconceived paradigms. And when I got, and obviously I'm going to read Timothy and Timothy and Titus and the New Testament over and over and over again, but especially those smaller letters written to pastors if I felt called to be a pastor. Um, but m- things began clicking. My paradigm began shifting. Illumination began to occur in, in heavy waves. I was studying theology. I was studying church history, and I was reading my Bible um, and talking about my Bible a lot. And so I jumped over um, and I was reading through Timothy, and this is this is where we're ending just on these ideas. But um, I'm going to read some of the verses leading up to the final verse here. But verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, uh, I mean, I'm reading out of the New King James Version, but it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Right, And that's where the damning doctrines of demons come f- comes from, this idea of what demons are out there, what doctrines are out there that are demonic. And we're going to continue that conversation. I'm not done with that. We will have part two and part three, and who knows how far we'll go. But that really scared me. Okay, we're in the last times, right? They're departing from the faith, giving into doctrines of demons. I'm like, well, what are these doctrines of demons, right? Verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. I'm like, Lord, is my conscience seared? Have I allowed my beliefs and presuppositions to sear me from seeing truth? Right? And this is something where I'm not looking around at other people. I'm truly trying to internally investigate my own thought processes. Verse 3, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be. You're right. And that's, you're talking um, the Judaizers. You're talking different people in church history. At the time, I didn't really know them. I'm like, well, nobody in my life's forbidding me to do this or to do that, really. Right? Um, but I was still thinking, okay, what are these doctrines of demons? You jump down to verse 6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus. I'm like, what else could you ask for to be, but to be a good minister of Jesus? Nourished in the words of faith and the good doctrine. I'm like, and I read New King James, and that's why I'm reading it this time, because this is, this is when I was reading New King James. I went New King after NASB. So it was NASB, New King, and now I'm ESV, NLT a lot of the time. But I went... And I was a good doctrine. Okay, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine. I'm like, well, I'm not nourished in doctrine, right? I, I was like, I don't really look at doctrine. Why, why is doctrine important? But here I'm reading Timothy, Paul writing to his mentee, his spiritual son, who is a pastor saying, you want to be a good minister, stay nourished in the words of faith and the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. I'm like, well, I'm not necessarily carefully following any doctrine. So I I began really investigating. I'm like, well, I am, okay, I I just didn't know what they were, right? Like, I'm I'm a continuationist, and I'm um, I'm a Molinist, right? At the time, that's what I, I, I... 
clung to. And I'm like, okay, these are, these are kind of doctrines. And I didn't know the doctrine of justification had a name. That would have saved me a lot of heartache when I was over there thinking, oh my gosh, I realized how good grace was. And I was using the word hyper grace and I had to repent for that. Um, but I, I, I grew up in kind of a legalistic structure. So when I discovered the doctrine of justification without actually studying the doctrine of justification, just the word of God, I realized I'm like, oh my gosh, his grace. And I began to believe in um, perseverance of the saints. And I began to believe in saving faith. And I began to believe in forgiveness of future sins, right? Which doctrine of justification, I'll use that word again. But I didn't know that was a doctrine. So I began reading these things, seeing these things, right? Reject old wives' fables, right? Or her old tales. Pursue, exercise yourself toward godliness. And then verse 12, this is where I want to end here. Verse 12 says, let no one despise your youthfulness or your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to be a young pastor probably, you know, um, things were looking that way. I was already an associate pastor at this time. And I was like, people look at me different, right? Even now people, when I come at people with, with biblical convictions and biblical truths, but it contradicts what they believe and what they think, I say, well, open your Bible. Let's let's have a discussion about this, because you can think differently than me if you can defend it. And people are like, well, that's just, you're just being proud. And they just turn the other way. They're not willing to have a discussion. But my heart behind it is I care about truth more than I care about the feelings of people around me. And I, I want to balance them out. But there is this necessity as a Christian minister, as a pastor, to care about truth. You have to, um, right? But be an example in what? First, word, then in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Oh my goodness, right? These things were coming at me wholeheartedly. I'm like, okay, I'm young. I need to know the word. I need to be a good conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And then you jump to verse 14, where it says, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. So there's something about receiving the gift from the elders imparted through the prophetic word, and he received this gift. And I would argue the gift is teaching. Um, teaching what? Well, doctrine, the trustworthy doctrine that Paul displayed. And he actually talks to him again about it in 2 Timothy. But he says in verse 15, Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. So what are the two things that this young pastor is charged with? To Well, he's called, charged to meditate on his conduct, his love, his, his faith, his purity, uh, which I would boil all back down to character expressing itself in love, faith expressed in love, your character, right? And then on teaching, on exhortation, on reading, the word, doctrine, Right, so when I was looking at this as a young pastor, um, young associate pastor, youth pastor, looking to potentially progress to be an elder, um, you know, now we have a plurality. But I was looking at this thinking, I I'm spending too much time and energy on things that I'm not called to, right? Too much time and energy um, invested in things that maybe aren't what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I started to pray and seek the Lord on this and just say, Lord 
if this is me, right, if I'm called to be a pastor, if I'm called to be an elder, um, then I need to study the word. I need to keep careful watch on my conduct. Am I, am I loving? Am I joyful? Am I at peace with others? Am I patient? Am I kind? Am I gentle? Am I good? Am I full of self-control, right? Am I loving? Uh, and these things are loving to kind of conclude once again in love, in spirit, right? And uh, then you get to verse 16. And this is actually the verse that get all the way to here at the 31 minute mark. And this is it, right? Verse 16, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Okay? Okay. And some translations will see keep keep careful watch. Um, But take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Noted. Continue in them. For in doing so, uh, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. What more could a pastor ask for? that those who hear your sermon that you preach um, will be saved and you will be saved, right? And so this is just quite the, uh, I would say, guarantee. If you continue in these things, in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So this, um, honestly, I mean, it's this whole section. It's both Timothy's and Titus, but Timothy 4, 12 through 16, but especially 16. I thought I was going to hone in on 12 because I was young, but I, you know, if people despise me for my youthfulness, that's, that's on them, right? Like, but 16, where it's saying, take heed of yourself and your doctrine, what you believe, what you endorse, the opinions you have when it comes to scripture, Right, and I have at our church we have a very clear like fundamentals of the faith are non-negotiable. Secondary issues, which most churches segregate on secondary issues, keep that in mind. That is not common ground for most churches. Secondary issues like continuationism, cessationism. I would consider uh, egalitarianism, complementarianism. I would consider that a secondary issue. I know people are like, well. If it's in the Bible, then it's a primary issue. The problem is um, eschatology, all of these things, we're all interpreting them slightly different. And really what I care about is do you have a biblically sound case for what secondary doctrine you're endorsing? But we actually have a leniency when it comes to secondary doctrines. I am not dogmatic. Um, We have people in our congregation that have all sorts of different opinions on secondary issues. Uh, As an example, when it comes to eschatology, we have people that are dispensational, pre-mill type of lean. And yeah, they see things a little differently than I do. And, you know, it's kind of become something where it's like, well, you believe that and I believe this. And our church kind of is now just like an openly pan-mill church. Like, it'll all pan out in the end. Like, we're not, we don't necessarily have a strong lean as a congregation in any direction. We just kind of all endorse pan-millennialism and uh, the joke there. And uh, you know, and we have people that are pre-mill. We have people that are post-mill. We have people that are um, leaning toward all-mill, right? And that's okay. And I love that we can be together, be of one accord because of the fundamentals of the faith. And, you know, and I know some pastors may read this passage here, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine and say, well, I've got to be dogmatic on every doctrine, both primary, secondary, and yes, probably even tertiary. The church better agree with me. However, that's not what I see. And in fact, when I read Romans 16 about, you know, watch out for those who cause divisions and obstacles contrary to the teachings in which you've been taught. Um, you know, people use that verse 
to attack like secondary issues like oh we can't associate with them because of this and this and i look at romans in its entirety being the largest gospel presentation ever given and to me that's the primary focus there is if they don't agree with this gospel that i just gave you then yes you need to divide and disassociate with them because they're creating obstacles contrary to what I'm teaching you, right? And so that's the emphasis there, in my opinion, and we can maybe go into that more on another podcast. But uh, anyway, I wanted to share the the verse that changed everything, um, but really it was just this whole runaround. This is a little bit of a testimonial on where I was being super charismatic uh, that's why when, you know, charismatics, if they come at me, it would be one of those things where it's like, no, I've been there. I've done that. I, I did that for longer than I've been doing this, right? Like people don't understand. They just, oh, you just got a, you just got theology, big brain. You, you worship John Calvin, right? Like that type of mentality when really they're not giving people on the reform side a chance to explain, no, this is how we're interpreting this. And this is why we see differently. I mean, I would love to go through acts, um, line by line, maybe on a podcast one day, but that, you know, that's a, (laughs) be a big project, but it would be interesting to go through that for my charismatic friends to show you like, this is how the charismatics look at Acts 2. And this is how R.C. Sproul looks at Acts 2. And most reformed scholars look at Acts 2 and which may seem more true. And can we maybe get into the historicity of this? And can we look at what seems more orthodox and things like that? And uh, that's the big thing, right? Like I'm okay with people having differences in secondary doctrinal issues. That's not what I believe a pastor. Pastor is called to keep people within orthodoxy. And in my humble opinion, continuationism and cessationism, when more balanced, are within orthodoxy. I think there are some hyper-charismatic type of things that are not and that I am more than willing to call out. And I actually think there's some cessationist points that are so that far um, that they also are bleeding into a form of heresy that I would call out. But as long as you're somewhere balanced, then I'm okay, right? And so this was very much so about like changing the way I perceived theology, changing the way I perceived doctrine and church history and catechesis, um, catechisms, and really be willing to come in and say, well, if I care about my soul and the soul of those who hear me, then I will pay careful attention to my conduct and careful attention to my doctrine in what I teach. And as someone who I believe is called uh, and spiritually gifted, empowered by the Spirit to be a teacher, um, really a lot of it is just um, studying, regurgitating, and being charitable, right? So many people out there today are not charitable. And if you're not someone who is teachable and charitable, then you're not a very good teacher, right? And so you can come in and, and write me on Instagram if you disagree with this, if you disagree with my approaches. Um, but I, I really want to encourage you as the listener um, listening to this, if you're reformed, be more charitable to those across the aisle from you. Um, and keep careful close on your conduct. Are you loving? Are you patient? Are you gentle, right? Are you good to people who maybe view things differently? And same thing for the charismatic friends. Um, Be willing to challenge your presuppositions. Be willing to shift away from your paradigm. Be willing to look into people that teach things contrary to you that are within orthodoxy, right? When I was charismatic, I was always told growing up, John MacArthur is great on everything but spiritual gifts. Right? I was never told John MacArthur wasn't good. I was never told John MacArthur wasn't saved. Um, just he wasn't very good with spiritual gifts. 
And I actually would still generally agree with that. I think his approach to cessationism is not a very good one. If you're going to look in, people ask me this sometimes, if you're going to look into cessationism, I think the most uh, charitable and fair cessationist there is, is Tom Schreiner. I'm a big Tom Schreiner fan. Listen to Tom Schreiner. He's been back and forth on the continuationism, cessationism kind of scale. The other people that I really like are Apologia. They're, they're openly cessationist, but the way they practice their faith is very continuationist sounding to me. And I know they say they're cessationist, right? But I could get along fine with Apologia because they look and sound just the way I would look and sound. We just have a different way of wording what we believe and the doctrines we endorse, right? Uh, I'm not going to probably be found at a ministry event with um, with Bethel or with Bill Johnson because I disagree pretty heavily with his teachings and with what he's doing. Now, I do think uh, there's a good chance we'll see him in heaven, and I've shared that before on previous podcasts, Rediscover Bethel, but at the same time, I would not share a platform unless he was willing to let me say things that might contradict what he says, right? So anyway, I'm, I'm rambling and going and going because I want to challenge you in this. Keep careful watch on your character. Keep careful watch on your doctrine. Ensure that you are doing these things, especially if you're called to be a teacher. You need to care about the word in such a deep way. You need to care about people in such a deep way that you that you grow in this, right? Uh, and take intentional heed to the doctrines and the theology that you are preaching and teaching and endorsing and how dogmatic you are on those things. So anyway, until next time, which I am hoping that we can get you something kind of a bit of a surprise within the next week. Uh, but we'll see. It kind of depends on schedules and the way things lay out. If not, I will see you again in two weeks. Uh, and until then, think on it. Finish the race.